So yesterday, Nathan was um, speaking about the Buddha and um, the kind of path that the Buddha uncovered to uh, sometimes called the path to the ending of suffering. And sometimes also um, referred to as a path of insight. Yeah, the insight that, that frees. Yeah, the insight that frees the mind from the habitual ways that we um, participate in the creation of, of, of our own suffering and the suffering in the, in the world. And sometimes there can be quite a lot of emphasis on insight. And we kind of forget about the integration. <laughs> yeah. So there's insight and you know, people have had insights, very beautiful, very lovely, very deep insights on this retreat. And this evening I'd like to hopefully kind of speak or suggest or open up ways that we can actually integrate those insights so that um, they're not just a, as passing a phenomena as, as they might be. Yeah, so that we actually keep, keep them alive, keep the insights alive. And, it, and it's a real question for us, a real exploration for us how to do that. How do we keep the, those, um, those understandings yeah, that have been here over the days. How do we keep those alive? I think this is also a, an image Nathan used, but not on this retreat, which is like um, keeping them hydrated, you know, so that things like they don't dry up. We need to keep, keep hydrating. Yeah, keep it, keep it alive, keep it juicy, keep it flowing. So that's, that's my intention with the talk, and we'll see um, kind of where it goes and, and how it leads there. So in, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition, there's, there's two avenues that are described as avenues um, of practice towards liberation or towards insight that, that frees. And the first one is described as, and it really kind of, you know, the language changes quite a lot between, depending on who's, who's, um, who's articulating. Um, so the language I'm using today is, is, uh, comes from the Burmese tradition. So, so the first avenue of, um, of insight that liberates or of liberation is, um, is often referred to as um, a path of self-oriented liberation. <laughs> Sounds like a bit of a contradiction. But, you know, a path of self-oriented um, liberation. What it essentially means, what it's referring to, is to a great degree what we've been doing here. Yeah? You know, taking time creating the conditions to step back from the busyness of life and engage in uh, more intense meditation, more simplifying of our, the conditions of our lives. So that, that's a support for that. And, um, you know, some seclusion from the world, a degree of seclusion. Kind of a real disengagement from the, from the cares, the everyday cares um, of the world, you know, what we need to, to, to do. Um, so that we can be able to attend more fully to, to really kind of getting to know our experience as we've been doing, you know, so that those are the, the conditions that allow us to really attend more fully to understanding our mind, understanding experience, understanding life, um, and also to train the mind in certain ways. So like we haven't used, we don't often use this language of training the mind, but essentially it's part of what we're doing, yeah? This cultivation of the pliability and the flexibility and the inclination of the mind to certain ways of looking, yeah, at life is, 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 is a training that we do. 
So that's, um, that's one, one of the avenues. And part of the reason why it's called um, self-oriented is that, again, traditionally it comes with this... Um, one of the ways we could understand the word dispassion that Nathan's been using, of kind of a, a real dispassion with the world, so really kind of a sense of not much interest in, in worldly things. Yeah. So traditionally that's what it comes with and kind of leads more to a monastic kind of uh, undertaking, but, but not only. The second um, avenue that leads to liberation is um, is again in the Burmese tradition is called liberation through world relationships. So it really sounds like really the other side of of the spectrum. Liberation through world li- relationships in the world. Yeah, so it very much has that sense of being in the world. And um, Alan Clements, who I've been quoting a lot, he he himself kind of took it even a bit further, and he calls his um, approach to practice liberation through living. So it's kind of, yeah, it takes it even a little bit more. And traditionally, this is considered a path that's much more difficult and takes much longer. Yeah, more difficult and takes, and takes longer. Just to, just to tell you that, you know, in case you're, you're choosing... That's, the, that's what it's, it's considered. Um, and at the root of, of, this, of this approach, of this avenue to, to awakening, um, is first of all recognizing our interconnectedness. Yeah? Like recognizing the interconnectedness and mutuality of our, of our existence. Um, and the second... I think that underlies it or, or it's rooted in is um, compassion that is really rooted in emptiness. Yeah. Compassion that is rooted in emptiness. And I'll explain a little bit more what that means. So this, um, this way of calling it liberation through world relationships, quite unusual. Usually we much more often hear it as the bodhisattva path. Um, maybe some people have heard this phrase, bodhisattva. And this uh, bodhisattva path, bodhisattva is a someone, yeah, someone who um, undertakes a path of awakening for the sake of the awakening of all beings. So working towards the freedom from suffering of all beings as a way of freeing the self. And I hope you've heard that, <laughs> that kind of contradiction again. It's, it's, like, it's again one of those things like delicious, funny things, you know, just I was referring to two nights ago that sometimes come up with the language, you know, and with the terminology. I like dedicating ourselves to working for the liberation of all in order to free ourselves. Yeah? And of course we're included in the all. That's the part of the thing. If we're working for the liberation of all beings as a way of freeing ourselves, it's that, that's the kind of... Yeah. Anyway, I find it funny. You don't have to find it funny. <laughs> I find it funny <laughs> that it's... That it's um, and, and that's kind of why I, I kind of said that thing is compassion that's rooted in emptiness and kind of can hold this thing of like compassion for all beings. Yeah, compassion for all beings and yet also seeing the emptiness. Yeah, seeing the emptiness at the same time. Yeah, it's rooted in that sense of emptiness, which is both the mutuality and the interconnectedness. Yeah, it's also that. It's also that understanding of that nothing really exists separately from anything else. And again, that's part of why this kind of self and other dance. Okay, I'll try and keep away from this <laughs> for the rest of the talk. Let's see. There's um, 
a beautiful story from um, from the stories about the Buddha. So there's this whole um, collection of tales of myths about the Buddha's previous lives before the life when he became the Buddha. Yeah, a, I think there's quite there's quite many of them, and in one of them. Uh, the story is that he was a, a very um, dedicated and talented spiritual practitioner. <coughs> and he lived in a time when there was uh, a different Buddha, a previous Buddha, I can't remember his name, who was teaching at the time. And the Buddha-to-be... <laughs> went to see the living Buddha of that time and received the teachings. And the story is that um, as he was listening to those teachings, he realized, he knew that if he um, really persevered in his solitary practice, he would be awakened in that life. Yeah, he would be awakened in that life. But Something about that living Buddha that was there and the way he, he was, his presence, so inspired Gautama, the one who was to become Gautama Buddha, eons later, <laughs> so inspired him that he chose instead to take this, this vow, this path, the Bodhisattva path, and to actually dedicate himself to cultivating all the qualities that would lead him to be not just awakened, but awakened in a way that he could then teach others and um, support others in their liberation. And so, apparently, you know, according to this myth, which to me is very beautiful, you know, he took, he took this vow kind of fully knowing the difference, you know, liberation in this life, or, you know, countless lives, countless lives, as a, with that sense of that, that mutuality, that care for others. And according to these, to these stories, to these tales, to these myths, you know, there's countless lives passed um, when he was cultivating generosity and um, ethics and... Um, equanimity and loving kindness and all, all the qualities and also um, the, the kind of selflessness you know like I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of these stories but one that I, I really remember is um, of one life when he, he comes across a, um, a tigress with her cubs and they're all the tigr. The, the, there's no hunting, so the tigress has no food, so she's starving, and so so are her cubs, her babies, and so he offers his body, yeah, in that in that life, he offers his body as sustenance, um, and that's kind of a cultivation of of generosity, of selflessness, to quite an extreme degree. But um, yeah, luckily I only remember that story, so I'm <laughs> telling you lots of others. The important thing is that, that that sense, like again, to go back to that moment of, of deep inspiration that was, um, you know, strong enough to to keep sustaining that that practice and that dedication over lives. So now I've kind of dug myself into a hole because I've, you know, told you this story, <laughs> which makes this path seem kind of really, you know, somewhere up there, you know, for Buddhas to be in. And what's it got to do with, with us mortals, you know, here, here and now? Which is a, a um, you know, a really, a really useful and important question to, to ask. And I think one thing that, that's interesting to, when we reflect on that, you know, we might have that sense of, well, here I am, you know, dealing with, you know, my, whatever my issues are. And then there's this aspiration, like, of the Buddha. And, and where's the connection? 
You know, where's the connection? And one thing that can be helpful to, to reflect on was when I, spoke, when I spoke about this, you know, whether I described this wish to awaken um, with all beings, yeah, or when I told the story about the Buddha's vow, was there a resonance in the heart? Was there an echo in the heart or in the being or in the mind? And if there was, which I'm pretty sure there was, yeah, if there was, then, you know, it's got a lot to do with us. It's very relevant to us, you know, because something in us responds. Something in us responds to, to this. And maybe I'll just give a little, just a, one anecdote to do with the historical stuff about this. So, there's this, you know, a lot of debate within the Buddhist tradition about these two avenues, yeah, of, of liberation and, you know, how come there's two and which one is better and all these kind of things. And some of the debates are scholarly and historical. And in the, in the oldest texts, the oldest texts, there's talk about bodhisattva, but there's only mention of, of the first avenue to liberation. There isn't a mention of the bodhisattva path. And one of the explanations for this, why it only appears later, a few, I think a hundred years later, or something like that, um, is that the human heart, yeah, the, the, the human heart, through the practice, the practice is so much nurturing, <coughs> compassion and loving kindness, that that kind of aspiration arose yeah, in practitioners and needed a path yeah, to, to kind of follow yeah so so I, and, and for me that's in a way much more beautiful than if it was taught by the buddha from the beginning yeah it's just so beautiful that it was actually it's the, it's a need that we have of you know altruism of care for each other and i think we you know our hearts echo and we also all know you know we all know um we know that people like this exist in the world. Yeah? We know that people like this exist in the world. They may be well-known or not well-known. They may be alive or dead. You know, they may be famous. Um, and they may be completely anonymous. But we know this, that this, this exists in, in, in humanity. Yeah, exists in humanity, including in ourselves. I just remembered, just as I'm saying this, I remember this... Um, Beautiful quote uh, from Viktor Frankl, who um, who was um, in the concentration camps in Auschwitz and uh, survived, and later uh, was a very um, kind of prominent psychologist and developed actually a whole system of of, psycho- of psychology. But anyway. Um, a quote of his, um, which I'm, I'm saying from memory, but he speaks about, he says, we who've been in the camps remember those who walked through um, the barracks, places where they were sleeping, and shared their last piece of bread with others, with those who were suffering. And he says there are proof of um, the last human freedom, I think he calls it, the freedom of choice, you know, of, of what we live by, yeah, what we live by, what, what is the, what we align our lives by, that no external conditions can actually take away that freedom. No external conditions can take away that freedom. So I want to look a little bit more at this kind of how this relates to us and how, you know, we can use this path as a way of integrating insight, which is what I said I would do in the beginning. And um, a short quote from Alan Clements again, when he says this approach, the bodhisattva path or the the path to liberation through world relationships. This approach rests on the idea that Dharma intelligence, 
The liberating blend of intuitive discernment, creative compassion and basic goodness counters the habit of self-centered fixation. Yeah. So he's calling this um, Dharma intelligence. So a blend of intuitive discernment, creative compassion and basic goodness. And this blend or this aspiration counters the self-centered fixation, which is at the root yeah, of, of suffering, yeah, which is at the root of, of suffering in ourselves and in the world. So what I personally love about you know, this approach, yeah, this, this avenue, this path, the Bodhisattva path, is actually its inclusivity. You know, so sometimes it may, like I say, we hear about it, it might feel like, oh, that's advanced. You know? It's not for where I am. But actually, it invites us to include everything on our path and everyone on our path. And wherever we are, yeah, wherever we are, even if it's in our worst, most contracted moments, we can practice, yeah. And, and this is, you know, this is the, the path. It does not necessarily need particular conditions. Yeah, they help, but it doesn't necessarily need them. So everything and everyone is a fuel and a means for awakening. Yeah. Everything in our lives, everyone we meet. This actually many times feels to me like it's the most grounded that we can get in our practice. Yeah, the most grounded that we can get in our practice. That aspiration to awaken for and with the community of all beings. We awaken together. And one way that we can see this, the way this path unfolds, is that aspiration, yeah, to awaken for the sake of all beings. Yeah, to awaken to the sake of all beings. We get in touch with that aspiration and then we keep following it in, yeah. And it goes deeper and deeper, goes deeper and deeper. And we're kind of deepening and widening understanding as we, as we follow this path. And we don't wait around. You know? We don't wait around to be perfected. Yeah? We apply. We integrate. We experiment with, with our lives. Through our intentions, our alignment, our actions, our ways of being in the world. Yeah, they're all avenues of integration. So anything, any relationship, any situation can be a vehicle for more insight, more integration, more understanding, um, more awakening. And sometimes, um, I think Pema Chodron asks this question a lot. It's like, can we just keep showing up? You know, can we just keep showing up to our lives? That's, that's all that's needed. <laughs> we just need to turn up and meet what's happening. Yeah, with as much wisdom and compassion as we can generate in that moment. Even if it's a tiny amount, you know. But it's as much as we can generate in that moment. And that's already a, sh- a huge shift. A huge shift. And of course, you know, naturally we're going to encounter challenges, you know, and obstacles. That's life, you know, whichever path we choose in life, whatever we do, there'll be challenges, there'll be obstacles. And our hearts may break, you know, more than once, yeah, more than once. But that too can be fuel for liberation, yeah. And ground for growth. There's a beautiful. Um, I'm realizing now that this talk is full of a lot of my um, long-term bodhisattva gurus. So Pema Chodron's one, and I'm just about to quote another one. A beautiful quote from Stephen Levine, um, who passed away a couple of years ago. A wonderful American teacher. 
And he had this saying, he said, um, the heart has to break in order to grow. Yeah. We spend so much of our time protecting the heart. Yeah. Because we're afraid of the pain. And we think we're protecting the heart by closing down or armoring. But actually that armoring keeps having to break so that the heart can get bigger. <laughs> because the armoring is holding it, keeping it small. Yeah. So it's actually that pain that we feel of the heart breaking is actually also part of the growth or can be. Yeah, part of the growth. So with, you know, with a lot of attentiveness, a lot of kindness and care to the process, the heart and and we we actually can become stronger. Yeah, when we put ourselves out there, when we show up, become stronger and we can um, become a little less protective and much more available. Yeah, both for to ourselves and to others, much more available. And this is the whole process of this path is like a process of it's like a dance of wisdom and compassion. You know, I said compassion rooted in emptiness, compassion rooted in wisdom, and wisdom that's rooted in the compassion. Yeah, so they're dancing together, supporting, supporting each other. So, if we're sincere, you know, if we're sincere on this path, and we actually realize that that division into two avenues that I offered at the beginning is actually very, very artificial. And if we're really sincere on the path, the two come together. Yeah, they have to. Yeah, we need time for meditation, contemplation, training the mind, observing the mind understanding the mind. And then we bring that into life. We bring that into the world. We bring that into relationship. And that feeds the times of, of quiet and of insight. Yeah. And so it becomes, it's, it's a dance between the two. They're not exclusive. And I was, um, was reading... Um, a quote by Mahasi Sayadaw today, who's, uh, you know, was a very one of the greatest masters of, of the pre- meditation masters of the previous um, century, and someone who you know I always associate with kind of quite a lot of like um, real kind of you know for meditation practice, and um, but he was actually someone who brought meditation back to lay people. You know, we're, we're actually all here partly due to him. <laughs> a huge revolutionary um, of taking the meditation, um, Vipassana meditation in particular, out of the monasteries and making it available to, to people um, in all kinds of, of life situations. And um, I read a quote by him when he, he says, you know, um, this is in the 80s in Burma, and he says... Most people in Burma, or all people in Burma who are serious about the practice, they combine. They combine what he calls the intense awareness meditation with meditation in the world. You know, they combine the two. You actually can't have one without the other. So... All of this feels particularly um, relevant at this stage of the retreat. Yeah, when we're um, tomorrow, conditions are going to change. Yeah, they're going to change uh, in quite an extreme way. <laughs> and so, this this time in the retreat is actually really valuable to to also um, begin to reflect both on the insights that have arisen and on the transition. And I think uh, recently, without even kind of talking about it too much, Nathan and I have started actually on this, the last talk, you know, the last full day, to actually start to speak about this instead of the traditional 
10 minutes before we break silence, which is the way it's usually done. Yeah, and actually start to talk about it now, so it can be part, real time for reflection and digestion when the conditions are still like this. So as the conditions are going to change and we're moving forward, can we kind of bring this, this two-fold approach with us of both the intensive inner looking and the engagement? Yeah, inner looking and engagement. And we, we had a... Um, we were sitting a retreat, a one-month retreat in, in November at Guy House, and at the end of the retreat, one of the other participants shared something in the closing circle, which really struck us, very, very beautiful. And she said that she's realized um, now, when she comes on retreat, that any retreat is actually made up of three parts. The first part is the getting ready for the retreat before coming on retreat. That's the first part. The second part is the retreat itself. And the third part is when the conditions change and you come out of retreat and back into um, more stimulation and more engagement with life. So the good news is you're only two-thirds through. Yeah. And I just think it's really helpful to, to reflect in this way, you know, to really see it as a, it's a continua- continuation of practice the conditions change, yeah, but it's a continuation. It's all part of one flow. And remembering that sense of integrating insight, you know, we're integrating insight. So I want to read um, some advice from another Burmese master, Upandita. And... Um, This is advice he gives to, to Alan Clements, and, and the, who's in similar situation to us. It's slightly more extreme. So he's been a monk in Burma for two years, practicing meditation very, very intensely. And then one day, there's a knock on his door, and the, there's a message from the authorities that he must leave Burma the next day. And there's nothing, you know, it's, an, it's a totalitarian regime. There's nothing he can do or anyone else can do. So he's a monk. He has to leave the next day. He's going to leave the monastery. He's got nothing. Yeah, he's a monk. He's not even allowed to carry money. Yeah. He decides he would go to Calcutta, of all places. And here's the advice that Upandita, his teacher, gives him. At, at this point, yeah, he's about to leave. They're saying goodbye. So this is already the next day he's about to leave. And they've had some conversation with others and then Upandita asks everyone else to leave and speaks to him alone. And he, um, for me, very touching. So Upandita asked everyone in the room to leave and he spoke to me as a father to a son. I was crying uncontrollably. Here are his words. Awareness is the true teacher. In the world, this awareness will bring you out of yourself and situate you very close to the hearts of others. This will sometimes be a great challenge. There are four things to remember. He says four, and then there's a lot more than four. But anyway, (laughs) I'm warning you. I'll I'll paraphrase. These are some things to remember in bringing the Dharma into the world. Bring love, compassion, honor, and poise to each person you meet. Learn from your shortcomings and try not to judge others for their weaknesses. Elevate yourself with goodness. Learn to substitute fear with courage, anger with love, greed with generosity. Reveal the Dharma by being the Dharma. Above all, be aware. There is no time off from freedom. 
Don't leave your breath in the monastery. This is how a true monk brings meditation into the world. So, yeah, it's so beautiful that I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Yeah. In the world, this awareness will bring you out of yourself and situate you very close to the hearts of others. So this, this awareness that we're cultivating, yeah, we bring it out into the world and it brings us, puts us very close to the hearts of others. I can say our sensitivity, yeah, our sensitivity opens. This will sometimes be a great challenge, yeah. It's not always easy to have an open heart. These are some things to remember in bringing the Dharma into the world. Bring love, compassion, honor, and poise to each person you meet. Learn from your shortcomings and try not to judge others for their weaknesses. Elevate yourself with goodness. Learn to substitute fear with courage. Anger with love, greed with generosity. Reveal the Dharma by being the Dharma. Above all, be aware. There is no time off from freedom. Don't leave your breath in the monastery. This is how a true true monk brings meditation into the world. So we won't leave the breath in somnat. Yeah, it comes with us. Yeah. And with the breath, awareness. And with awareness, that intention to meet others and to meet ourselves with kindness, with compassion, with respect. And so as we move, as conditions change, we continue to spend some time in meditation, in reflection, yeah? That doesn't need to disappear. And we can continue to use the maps and the reminders that, we've, that have resonated with us here. We can continue to use them like, you know, dependent origination or the three characteristics um, or the breath energy, whatever kind of, whatever felt like it resonated and was a resource and opened a doorway, we can continue to use them, we can continue to apply them. And we can continue to cultivate ways of looking that reveal emptiness, that open up the perspective, that help us kind of dissolve those prison walls that we've been speaking of. That kind of open us up to the mutual, the mutuality and the mutual relationship of all life. And the teachings and the practices continue to be with us, you know, just like awareness, just like the breath. We can keep coming back to them and keep using them, keep those insights juicy and alive and hydrated. And I'd like to to just offer a few teachings that are very profound in my experience, but also very much about about engagement, about daily life situations. And they come from the Tibetan tradition, from uh, something called the Lojong slogans. And um, I, I really see them as ways of looking, yeah, ways of looking that we can use. And there's 59 of them. But <laughs> I'm maximum going to talk about seven. It might be less. We'll see what the time does. They're, they're short. Well, some of them are, not all of them. 
So the first one is um, remembering and training in the basics. Yeah, remembering and training in the basics. And the basics, according to this teaching, the first one is to stay in touch with the preciousness of a human life and our life. Yeah, to stay in touch with the fact that we're alive and that that is precious. Yeah. And we can also include in that the particular aspects of our lives that we feel appreciative around. The second one is to be aware of impermanence. Yeah, that death is part of all life and it could come at any time. And to be in touch with that as much as we can. The third, this is all one slogan, yeah. <laughs> These are the basics. The third is... Um, that actions, any action of body, speech, or mind has results. You know, really simple. Can we remember that any action of body, speech, or mind has results? And the fourth is, can we hold the sense of self lightly? Yeah, remembering that it's not as real as it seems and exploring its relationship to suffering in our lives. So these are the basics. The second um, slogan is um, regard all dharmas, which in this context means all phenomena, all things. Regard all dharmas as dreams. And what it means is not that everything is an illusion, but um, it's encouraging us to look at experience through the lens of, of emptiness. So things are not as solid or real as we take them to be, or permanent as we take them to be. And we can really explore this. You know, We can explore it at times when we're meditating formally, and we can see how sensations, emotions, thoughts, vedana, you know, all of that arises and passes. It doesn't stay. Um, we can explore how phenomena is affected by ways of looking. Yeah? And again, people have had some real insights into that over the days here. You know, um, sensations of pain disappearing when, metas turn, when we turn to them with metta. Yeah? Just, you know, what does that mean about experience? does that mean about our invo- the, the involvement of the mind? So constantly watching, looking, how do, how do the ways of looking affect experience? Something we can, you know, I sometimes almost love it. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm in a bad mood. <coughs> yeah? And if there's just enough space, it can be, okay, how's this going to affect the day? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen to Nathan when he opens his mouth? <laughs> You know, whatever, you know, we just like we can bring that in. You know, how is, how, how is the way of looking affecting experience? We can also um, bring that same, ex- you know, ex- exploration. So regard all dharmas as dreams. Bring that exploration in relation to others and to events. Um, you know, we all know this experience of maybe getting really, really um, angry or worked up about something. You know, we've, you've maybe forgotten this week, but, you know, we all know this experience in our lives, getting angry or um, caught up in some way with something. And then time passes. You know, it might be five minutes, it might be an hour, it might be a day, it might be a week, it might be five years. And we look back and we kind of think, what was that? You know, what was that about? You know, in the moment, that seemed so real and so important. And now it's just like a dream. Yeah? Like, who, what was that and who was that? Yeah? So we, we, and, and this kind of reflection, you know, we, it will happen to us. It will happen to us again. I'm sorry to say this retreat has probably not freed you from these experiences. But hopefully we can, we can use them, actually. You know, when... When they happen, even if we get caught up in the same way, that reflection can come and say, oh, what was that? 
and we can reflect and look at it. And over time, we can more and more catch ourselves also in the moment. Or at least not kind of carry the residue. Yeah? Not carry the residue. And we can explore also um, in the moment of, of any kind of reactivity. What happens if I relax the body? Or I take a deep breath? You know, things that we've done here. Applying those insights, yeah, so that the moments um, of challenge actually become moments of opportunity, yeah. This is this is the, this is the bodhisattva path, yeah. It becomes opportunity instead of being a problem. It's okay. Opportunity to see, to explore. I need to choose. I don't think I'm going to get to seven. Okay, I can't resist this one because it's my favorite. Drive all blames into one. So drive all blames into one, all the different blames into one. What does it mean? So when difficulties arise, particularly with others, yeah, with other people, um, we can watch our tendency to project things out, yeah? So there's some difficult situation, and our tendency is to project it out, yeah? So we, we, it, we actually move from in here to be somewhere here, or on the other person, yeah? It's there, to, we blame them, you know? It's their fault, it's their responsibility, it's their um, action, it's their aggression, it's there, it's there, it's there, yeah? Can you see the movement? Moves out. When we drive all blames into one, we gather them up and we come back inside, not with the blame, <laughs> we, leave, we let the blame kind of dissipate, but we turn our attention inwardly and we actually observe, okay, what's happening? And can I cool down the reactivity? Yeah? Can I cool? Can I first of all come back into the body, come back into myself and cool down the reactivity? Because this is actually when we can affect change. As long as this is on fire and everything is out there, not much is going to change in a productive way. Yeah, we're going to play the, the, the blame game with someone else. So we, you can, you know, it's effective with blame, but it can be any other difficult interaction. And that reduces the suffering for everyone involved. If we kind of bring the attention in, and cool down the internal reactivity. It kind of reduces the suffering for everyone. So the next one is to be grateful to everyone. Yeah, be grateful to everyone. Whether we like them or dislike them, uh, we like their actions or dislike their actions. And it's not just a... Um, Someone was using this image in, in uh, one of the groups. It's not just like a painting it pink gratitude. It's not about kind of whitewashing. Yeah? The gratitude is because everyone is a potential teacher. Yeah? That's the gratitude. The gratitude is because everyone is a potential teacher. And these kind of situations of, of you know, something of conflict or something unpleasant happening, we can use that yeah, as a mirror to see our patterns, to see where we're stuck, to see where we can grow. So it can be, it's actually a gift for the training of our heart and our mind. Even if it feels very unpleasant, <laughs> even if it feels very unpleasant, we just turn it, yeah? We turn it. It's like, okay, what can I learn? How can I grow? And both of these, both the, just to kind of say, the drive all blames into one and um, practice gratitude towards everyone. Um, very clear here, they're not about condoning or agreeing with harmful behavior. So we're not saying, oh, I agree with this behavior. Yeah? Well, it's all okay. What we're doing is both understanding the conditioned nature of events. Yeah? Someone is acting in a certain way that's harmful. That's conditioned. Yeah? 
So that's one thing that we understand. And the other thing is um, what would actually be useful here? You know, what is actually useful here? And often the, the most useful thing we can do is to bring the attention in towards ourselves and cool down the reactivity as, as a useful response. So those two understandings. And there's a beautiful image um, from Shantideva, who's a 8th century um, teacher. And he, he says, um, he gives this image of if, if you see a man with a stick hitting um, another man or an animal with a, with a stick, you're not going to get angry at the stick, right? Because the stick is causing the pain, but the person is propelling the stick, right? And he says, just in that way, we can look at the man, yeah, who's using the stick. They are also propelled by conditions. So it's a, it's, a, it's a broad view. It's a broad view. And with all of these, also noticing how, if we can apply them as ways of looking, how does that affect experience? Yeah, how does that affect experience? Okay, so we'll, I think, leave it with those four. And just, um, just uh, the last one that I'll say today, which is really short, is train wholeheartedly in strengthening your natural capacities of wisdom, compassion, and metta. So train wholeheartedly in strengthening your natural capacities of wisdom, compassion, and metta. I'll read the Upandita quote again tomorrow. So let's just have a a quiet moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.